all so much for, for coming out on this warm, warm day. <laughs> this is the day you can take the polar punch if you like. Actually, they canceled it because of the ice. I know they canceled because of the ice and the wind. But it's a lot of warmth in here. And um, we really do appreciate your coming. We are so blessed to have such a wonderful person here. And she graciously agreed to come to the Friends in continuation of our 40th anniversary. Our first author was Don A. Stokes on November 10th at our first anniversary and our annual meeting. And now Candace here. I've not met her. I've communicated by email and so forth. And she's so gracious. She's so warm. For those of you who may not know too much about Jen, I've asked our treasurer, Gail, to come up front and just read something from um, our newsletter. If you would do that now, Gail. All right. Well, thank you very much. I'm very pleased to um, introduce uh, Jean Mikalski. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, um, who is um, a lifelong resident of Baltimore City. Um, she's going to be talking about her debut novel, The Tide King, um, which the Baltimore Sun has called the best fiction in their 2013 Best of Baltimore. And if that's not praise enough, um, they um, said the Tide Queen, the Tide King is not only the best local book we've read this year, it's also one of the best books we've read, period. And that's, that's very... Strong praise for a book I'm excited about learning more about. Um, she was also named um, by the Baltimore Sun one of 50 women to watch. She's um, a fixture in the um, Baltimore's literary community. She's hosted the 510 readings in Hamden. <coughs> um, she's also hosting um, a new series. It's the Ivy Bookstores uh, Starts Here. And she's also hosted um, what's called The Tonight Show, called um, The Lit Show at the Creative Alliance with Betsy ba um, Boyd. So we're very pleased to have her here today and um, give her a warm welcome. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, is this too loud? I can just talk without it. Okay. Um, thanks so much to the friends for inviting me to the uh, 40th anniversary celebration. It's been a, a really great year. I've done a lot with the, the Pratt, and I'm really excited to um, represent them in the celebration this year. Um, thanks to Flo Valentine and the friends, again, for inviting me. Um, last year, I published my first novel called The Tide King, and um, it's a little bit of a, I wouldn't say magical realism, but there is an enchanted herb that grants immortal life to those who eat it. That's sort of the, the short story, the short premise of it. Um, but it's a novel that's very, for me, very realistic. It spans 200 years from Poland to uh, 20th century America. There are three people who take the herb and become immortal. And really, when I was writing it, the book for me was about loneliness. Like, how do we um, forge connections with people, especially if we know they're 
going to die and we're going to keep living. But it's true for, for real life as well. How do we forge connections? We know people are always going to leave us. So that was one of the themes that I was um, working on. People always ask me, because a lot of different things happen in this book, and people ask me, um, you know, how did you get the idea? And honestly, it, it, it was a book that I was working on for a long time, and I didn't realize I was working on it. Um, I'd say almost 10 years ago, I was writing a story about an enchanted herb, and I, I don't even know why I was working on it now. I need to actually keep a diary of why I'm, I'm doing things when I'm writing, because sometimes I can't remember why I'm writing something or what sort of fit I was in or why I even wrote it. And um, I, I never finished it. I wrote 50 pages. I put it aside. And a few years ago, I was reading um, a National Geographic article about the, the battleship Bismarck that was sunk in World War II. And it was, there was a father-son team that was coming to diving down in the ocean to, to sort of take a look at it. And it was a really interesting article. And in the end, there was this coda at the end saying that the son had died in a car accident when they came back to the States. And I thought that was really heartbreaking. And I wanted to write a short story about this father and son team that was exploring the Bismarck, very similar to the National Geographic article. But when I started to write the um, story, like, I don't know, when you're writing, like, your writing has other plans for you. And I started to write, and I was, it became the soldier in Germany in, in the snow named Stanley. And I was like, huh, well, let's see where this goes. And I wasn't really interested in writing a World War II story or a novel because it's been done before and what can I say? But at the same time, I was intrigued because my both of my grandfathers had served in the war in different capacities and they never really talked about it when they were alive and I felt a great loss when they died that we hadn't talked more about it and um, discovering some of my grandfather's old letters to his, his old army buddies and stuff like that um, was, I, I felt like a great, there was a great loss. So it, I wasn't averse to writing about it. I wanted to keep the, the story in mind and maybe I could sort of live their experience vicariously and then sort of honor it in some way as I hadn't done when they were alive. So I started to write this World War... started to go on and on with this World War II story, not really knowing what was going to happen, not really sure what I was doing with it. And I was looking in my, at my computer for something one day and I opened the, the story about the, the enchanted herb that I'd written years and years ago, I'd never finished. And all of a sudden, I was like, well, what if those soldiers in Germany, what if they had an enchanted herb, and what if one fed the herb to the other when he was dying, and what would happen if he lived? And all of a sudden, those two stories like were completing each other. And the way I like to say it, it was like I had all these beads, and I finally found the necklace to put them together on. And after I found that um, story, it... it the, the novel came together really quickly for me, what it was about. But it, it, was, it was weird because I was writing this novel for 10 years in different ways and didn't know um, that it was going to be this novel. And that's not always the case. The novel I just finished, I knew pretty much what it was going to be about. Maybe there were some things that changed. But this novel, when I was writing it, it was such a... They say that, that they say the draft of discovery when you're first writing. I just had no idea when I started writing about Stanley that it would be this book about immortality and this huge 200-year undertaking. Um, but I'm really glad that I was able to um, trust my gut and go, go ahead with it. So I'm going to read two sections, two different sections today, and then I'd be happy to talk about anything about the novel or writing or just hang out. Um, the first section is when Stanley is going to war and his mother 
gives him the herb and, and he goes to Germany. Nineteen forty two. It was almost time to go. His mother, Safine Polinski, would see him out the door, but not to the train station. She would not watch him leave on the train, his face framed in the window, his garrison cap covering his newly shorn head. She would see him to the door, where he could go to work, to school, to the store, and in the corresponding memory of her mind, he would return. She opened the lock of the rose-carved jewelry box on the kitchen table with a butter knife, the key orphaned in Poland somewhere. He wondered whether she would produce a pocket watch, a folding knife, his father's or his uncle's, that he could fondle while trying to sleep on the hard earth, dirt full of blood and insides, exposed black tree roots cradling his head like witch fingers. He opened his hand, waiting. She pulled out the envelope, old and brown, and the dark, furry object he regarded. A mouse carcass, a hard, moldy bread, brunette saxifrage. She put the, mumbly, the crumbly mound in his palm. Most powerful herb, I save it until now. He glanced at the leaves and roots spread over his palm, dried like a fossilized bird. His lips tightened. His whole life to that point, a stew of herbs, chalky and bitter and syrupy in his teas, his soups, rubbed onto his knees and elbows after school. Safin had brought them from the homeland, Rezel, Poland, stories of Baba Yaga's and herbs and the magic of her youth. He may have believed once, been scared as a child. He put it back in the envelope, more fragile than the herb. You take this. She grabbed his palm, her knuckles blue and bulbous. Eternal life. You take it when you're about to die. You will live. This is the only one. You understand? He nodded, pushing it into the far pocket of his duffel bag, where he was certain to forget about it. Herbs had not saved his father from pains. They had not spared his mother's hands, curled and broken, her lungs, factory black. How would they save his head from being half-blown off, his guts from being hung like spaghetti on someone's bayonet? He hugged her. She smelled like garlic and dust. Then he, Stanley Polinski, walked to the Baltimore station, got on the train, and went to war. They spent the summer moving inland toward Germany. The war will be over soon, Stanley wrote his mother, his 20th letter. The Germans are running like cowards. He played poker with Johnson and Ennis, throwing pennies and cigarettes and girly pictures into a German helmet they used as a pot. I hope you are well and do not worry about me. He spent one week at Netley Hospital for his leg wound. Nothing much has happened to us in Europe, except we are getting fatter. He lost 20 pounds since leaving the States. Hopefully, by the time you get this, I will be on the train home. In September, they entered the Hurchin Forest. I would die for a ham. Johnson let his cigarette dangle as he settled in the brush. It was a game they played sometimes, what they would die for, since they might die for much less. I would die for a turkey sandwich, Stanley answered. Spruce and balsam trees cloaked their eyes, yielding little forests beyond a few feet. The tree limbs, low, grabbed, and the men walked with a semi-permanent stoop. I would die for a woman's hips. I would put myself between them and sleep like the dead. Johnson grinned, his teeth white against the green cave. Water dripped constantly. The men could never find the source of it. Sometimes it confused Stanley, and when he slept for brief periods and woke, 
He thought he was at his parents' house, down the hall from the leaky faucet. Stay here. Johnson's arm would grab Stanley's ankle as Stanley began to push forward through the brush. The sink is fucking leaking. Stanley waved him off before Johnson yanked, and Stanley fell down into the bed of pine needles that covered the forest floor. I would die to get out of this forest, Stanley said, as they ate the last of their bread and coffee. The supply lines inland were farther away, their rations fewer. I would die for dry socks. The mud and fog lay on them like a film. In the dark undergrowth, the men rubbed against trees and each other like ingredients in a stew. Where were the Germans? Surely not as stupid as the Americans, Stanley thought, burrowing through the forest, their tanks and artillery and air force stalled by the dense formations of trees and rough terrain. The Allies were all alone. The brass said the Hurchin forest was 50 square miles. It seemed to stretch to 100, then 200, then 300, as late October became early November, and late November became early December. Stanley did not understand how they could not see the Germans, and yet the Germans could see them. They know these forests. They're stuffed in bunkers while we walk right by them, Johnson said, coughing. Johnson had developed a cough, snore, shiver in his sleep. Perhaps Stanley could boil the herb for tea, soothe Johnson's deathly rattle. I still have the herb, Stanley wrote to his mother, although I suspect I will have no reason to use it. You never even told me how. Should I put it under my lip? In a wound, perhaps? His right foot smelled. There was no time to unlace the boot and find out whether his toes had rotted. We are warm and fat and happy. Save me some chinina. Duck blood soup, Johnson laughed later when Stanley described Christmas dinner at home. You eat everything, don't you, Pollocks? Makes me want to come to your house for dinner after the war. Right now, I would eat anything, Stanley shivered. He shivered when he was awake and he shivered when he was dreaming. His breath was staccato with shivers. He shivered when he peed, and he shivered when he shat, and he shivered when he shivered. Stanley would eat his shivers if he could, but they would probably give him diarrhea, he thought, like everything else. They walked in a diamond formation, Stanley in the back, Johnson in the front. One man, red-haired, was to their left, another, blonde-haired, to their right, Stanley didn't know their names. It seemed a waste to learn them. Wood and shrapnel fell from the sky, mixing with snow, hitting the ground in hisses. The trees burned, standing still. Stanley listened to the fire eating the wood, the snap of twigs and branches as they broke free of the parent trunks and fell down to the forest. Smoke poured from the nooks and crannies of the burning bark, and the men were forced to crawl. On the ground, the red-haired man in front would tap the top of his helmet and point in the direction of movement, and they would all crouch and fill that direction with fire, grenades. But then, the blonde man on the right threw a grenade that hit a tree and bounced back toward them, and they dove leftward and rolled down a small hill. I would die for a stick of gum. Johnson entangled himself from Stanley. The smoke cleared briefly, and the hard marble of sun blinked through the treetops. This might be our lucky day, Stanley nodded. Before them, a formation of rock appeared in the trees with a low opening, two by eight feet, a bunker. The red-haired man stood off to the side of it. He tossed in a grenade as they turned, covered their ears. Then they waited for the smoke to clear before joining him at the hole. Stanley was the shortest, so he got on his knees and crawled in. He imagined a speckling of dead pale boys, boys with smooth faces and darting eyes, but it was empty with black. He tapped the inner mouth of the cave to make sure it was still secure. 
Then he pointed his thumb up, and the others joined him. Now this is living, red-haired man said in the darkness. He lit a cigarette and stretched. We stay here until the war ends, okay? At least for a nap, Stanley agreed, pulling his blanket out of his backpack. We take turns on watch. They slept on ground that wasn't wet and in corners that weren't windy. They slept with their helmets off, their boots unlaced, oblivious to the shelling outside. When they woke, their stomachs were relaxed, growling. They wondered how to get back to the line for rations. They wondered where they were. I say we stay in the hole, the red-haired man said. Yeah, when one of our own boys throws another grenade in here, then what? Blonde said, tightening his laces. That's why we take turns on watch, the red-haired man shook his head. And when our whole company leaves us behind, Johnson loaded his rifle. We'll starve to death in the woods. Moving 30 feet a day, red-haired man sneered, not fucking likely we'll get left behind. My orders were to take the forest. Johnson crammed his head out of the hole. I don't know about yours. They decided to follow the ravine that led from the bunker. All along the Kraut Trail, Johnson laughed. Think they'll shell us here? I say we're mighty close to something. Stanley lit a cigarette. Think we're near the West Wall? By God, we should, be, we should be so lucky, the blonde man said. Then we can shoot the hell out of them and go home. Stanley could not picture home. His mother's face appeared vaguely, the smell of her, the sound of her, the hardware store where he worked on Eastern Avenue, his school, Baltimore Polytechnic. He could not be sure whether any of those things had happened or whether they were a dream, whether he had always been at war and would always be. They walked along the ravine for hours. Sometimes they would come across a body of a German, always picked clean. One body was missing its fillings, the mouth open and exposing bloody stumps of gum line. We need to find some krauts so we can take their shit, the blonde man said. I'd even eat the fucking krauts, the red-haired man said. Maybe we should go back and find our men. Maybe you're right, Stanley said. Even if we find the Germans, they'll probably outnumber us. Our men are probably ahead of us, Johnson said, his head nodding forward. That's why we're seeing so many dead. I told you we got left behind. Not likely, the red-haired man said. I'm going back. The whole month, I ain't seen nobody get ahead of me. If there's somebody ahead of us, it's a different division, which I'm more than happy for. Let them take some shots. I'm with him, the blonde turned in the slit trench. Come on, Red grabbed his rifle. Safety in numbers. Let's go back. What say you? Johnson looked at Stanley. Johnson was the leader, but Stanley wanted to find their squadron, find food. Let's go back. Stanley didn't look at Johnson. The Pollock has decided, Johnson said, spitting in the trench, kicking at the snow dirt with his boot. Let's go. They turned around and followed the slit trench back to the bunker. Then they climbed up the slope they had fallen down earlier. Let's sweep out and move forward, Stanley said. Stanley moved in front, Johnson in the back. The shelling shook and shredded the the tree canopy above them, branches falling like swooping vultures, pelting their shoulders and arms, leaving welts. The raining wooden shells filled the air with the sound of sanding metal, and Stanley could not hear anymore, only see their jaws moving, their eyes flicking back and forth as they scanned the area for mines, for Germans, for secure ground in front of them. Stanley wished they had stayed in the bunker. He glimpsed a man running through the trees with a red and white cross armband, a medic. They knew how to get back to the line. All they needed to do was follow him. Stanley motioned to the men and ran toward the figure. He had not gotten far when the ground swelled behind him like a wave, sweeping him off his feet, 
a shell. His body hit the dirt at angles, elbows, knees, ankles, before rolling. When he stopped, he felt for his legs, moved them, and stood up, crouched over. Johnson? He called back. The area from where he had been thrown was peppered with wood and metal, black and bark, gray and red snow. Johnson's helmet. He followed the trail to Johnson, what was left of him. Blood spread from the left side of Johnson's groin, his left leg scattered around him, bone broken and carved like scrimshaw and strewn with strips of muscle and skin. Johnson shivered, coughed, and looked lazily up at Stanley, drunk with shock. Stanley called for the medic. The blond man staggered up and then off, shouting for help. Stanley tore a strip of cloth from Johnson's backpack and made a tourniquet. Johnson's big, long face caved in from his cheeks to his chin. His eyes fluttered. Johnson, Stanley shook him. But Johnson was going. Stanley took off his helmet and scooped the herb out of the lining. He opened Johnson's mouth and pushed it in. But Johnson didn't chew. Stanley opened Johnson's mouth and put a third of it between his gums and teeth. He picked off another piece and put it in the red beating hole that was once Johnson's hip, his leg. Then he moved Johnson's jaw with his own hands, pushing Johnson's tongue aside, grinding the herb with Johnson's teeth. Johnson's mouth was as dry as cotton, and the herb coated the soft pink insides. Stanley stuck his finger in Johnson's mouth and pushed the flakes, the unchewed pieces, into Johnson's throat. Johnson gagged, sitting up and coughing, hands at his neck. The green-brown flakes flew out, covering Stanley's face and shirt. Stanley wrapped his arms around Johnson's chest and jerked upward. Stanley jerked, and Johnson coughed, and the herb chunk flew into the snow. Medic, the man dropped his kit beside Stanley. Stanley moved back and caught sight of the spat-out herb. It glowed in the detritus, unearthly. Stanley's heart jumped. He reached for the glowing orange saxifrage. The medic turned, shook his head, frowned. Johnson was dead. The medic tagged him, took one of his dog tags, and scrambled back into the forest. It seemed wrong to leave Johnson like this, any of them like this. Maybe Stanley wouldn't fight anymore, stay here with Johnson, work the herb into his wounds, down his throat. He could stick his knife into Johnson's chest and massage it into his heart. The trees shook around him, men shouted in the distance, the trail of bullets, explosions, small fires baked in the pockets of black trees. When another shell landed to the left of Stanley, he could feel the warmth of it on his leg. He did what he later imagined any other person would do. He ran. I'm going to move ahead. Um, I'm not giving anything away by saying that, that Johnson lives. Um, and a lot happens to Johnson in the ensuing pages. But a lot happens to Stanley, too. He comes back from the war and... Um, He has trouble integrating like so many um, soldiers did after World War II with shell shock. And I don't ever read this passage, but I kind of wanted to read it today because I'm at a library and I, I read a lot of books and I get a lot of books in the library. And the fun thing about being a writer, especially if you're writing a book that has you have 200 years to fill, is that you can write about whatever you want. So um, when I was reading, when I was working on The Tide King, a couple of books really spoke to me um, Norman Maclean's um, Young Men in Fire, the nonfiction account of the Man Gulch Fire from 1947, really affected me. And I actually included the Man Gulch Fire in this book. 
And um, at the time, I was also reading a lot about um, country music in the 40s. Um, I'd read um, Maxine Brown's biography, Looking Back to See, about the Brown family. And I also read a fiction account of the Brown family called Nashville Chrome by Rick Bass. And I decided I really wanted to have like a country music star in this book um, for some reason. So as it turns out, uh, Stanley, when he comes back from the war, falls in love with a woman who is not only a little person, but she has big dreams of becoming a country music star. So for a while, they're touring around the country um, and they have a baby. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that section. This is from 1960. Um, 1960. They were somewhere between Nevada and Kansas, stuffed in a station wagon with a bunch of pickers, Dwayne Zooks and Bobby Hill and Terry Mann, when Heidi was born. 200 miles, an inch on Dwayne's road map, a thousand in the prairie dark, snaked from the piston-powered engine of their wagon to the gig in Kansas City. If only the road... If only the road was all. But now, sometime after midnight, the snow began to fall like an act of malice, swirling and bleaching the night with salt. Stanley stopped the car, and the pickers slid out of the back seat, checking some of the equipment they had tied to the hood. Baby's coming now, honey, snow or not. Cindy lifted her legs and pressed them against the dashboard, so short there was slightly a bend in her knee. Her naked toes grew blue as her face began to color and contort and rhythm with the mysterious will of God contracting and moving within her, the same mysterious will that planted seed in Cindy's 41-year-old womb. Of course it was not his. He knew it because of the way Cindy sat on Duane's lap at bars, snuggling against his head, how they'd disappear for hours in the Pickers hotel room to work on music, how, certain nights, Cindy would come in and straddle him, demand they have sex, as if to cover her bets. Stanley did not know what to do except sit in the bar and nurse whiskey, and accept that he had failed as a man, but was pretty good at being a roadie, driving the car on two-lane highways while everyone slept, dragging amps and putting together drum kits on stage. And now, he was going to be a father, at least in name. It had been hours since he'd spoken to Cindy, after she agreed to the gig in Kansas City at the last minute on their way home from Reno, when they should have been headed straight for the nearest hospital. When he put his foot down and she threatened to leave him there, at the shack its owners had built as a casino and club, the new Texas lounge, by its looks, he wasn't sure what was so new about it. He put out his cigarette and turned toward her. The new had already gotten old. The dates that their manager arranged haphazardly for them across the country, as if he were shooting rubber bands while spinning in a circle. The sleeping in the car, the show promoters skimming money off their ticket sales, the pickers, great guitar players but lousy men, the jeering, the leering drunks in the audience who called Cindy names, sometimes through bottles. It would have been enough for Stanley. But for every breakfast of coffee and toast, every lost shoe and blown tire, every boo, there was applause, encouragement, people who bought their single and fawned over Cindy, and that was enough for Cindy to stand the rest of it. And now, there was the child. He leaned over and held her and held out his hands as Cindy's face went red and purple and white and then went again like Christmas lights. He patted the claw of her fist that had begun to separate the vinyl fabric from the front seat. He tore off his jacket, an old shielding rancher's coat, and held it between her legs, ready to cloak the pink nub of Harry Eraser, Calvin or Heidi, that appeared and bring its little plum-sized heart next to his, 
and Cindy's hair, long and blonde, caught her lips as she groaned and pushed once, twice, three times, and the slippery girl wormed out into the cocoon of Stanley's coat, Heidi. Heidi. Her breath made a little cloud above her face, so honey-dark in color, before Stanley pressed, it, pressed her against his chest, wrapped the cord around his index finger, and nicked it free with his pocket knife. Cindy wiped herself with the quilt, the quilt they slept under, would have to sleep under wherever they slept next. Jesus H. Christ, look at that. Duane, whose Indian skin glistened with the same syrup color as the baby's, shook the snow off his shoulders and climbed into the back seat. If he had any thoughts about his new fatherhood, they came second after his guitars strapped to the hood. Two miracles tonight, my Gibson's okay and a baby. Stanley felt sleepy, the warm bean on his chest beginning to stir and cry for food, for shelter. His baby. He cupped the caramel head with his pink hand, felt the wet of her dark hair against his palm. Dwayne's baby. He handed her to Cindy and revved the engine. It's as white as a sheet out there, but I don't see what other choice we got, Dwayne said as Terry and Bobby piled in, bringing with them the snow and the cold. Close the doors. I gotta feed her. Stanley unbuttoned her blouse, the rawness of birth now hidden under the blanket. She brought the baby to her breast as if she were brushing her teeth. They rode in silence, white, creeping, the sound of snow crunching under tires, pickers breathing, babies suckling. The white erased them from everything in the world, everything from them. They were quiet in its vortex, except for Heidi, who screamed as if they all owed her something. Cindy was awake. She was awake when on stage, signing photos, and doing interviews at the radio stations. She was asleep in the car, in the hotel room, feeding Heidi, and whenever Stanley wanted to kiss her and maybe more. She was awake now because of the call. She called Eddie every day, few days to check in, and after today's call, lipstick containers and fake pearls and hairbrushes rattled and rolled around the vanity until Stanley lifted his head from the pillow. What? He was up with Heidi until a few hours ago, hours that felt like minutes. You wake the baby. Oh, my dear sweet Lord, Stanley, forever my arms is number one on billboard. Cindy half-skipped, half-danced over to him. On oh, my mo- mother's grave, baby, this ain't a joke. That's great. He turned over, his face in the hotel room pillow, sour and lumpy like a kindergarten beanbag. Good things for Cindy seemed to mean trouble for him. They had not been home in five months, even with the newborn baby. You know what this means, honey? She stood by the bed, stroking his hair. It means we're going to be on the Opry. Wendell told me once we hit the top five, we're going to get a call. He promised. Oh, Stanley, they love me. Even if they don't, baby, I would still love you. He sat up in bed, rubbing his temples. He had stopped drinking on the road, but still felt like shit. Hours and hours of padding around the hotel room, the hallway, backstage, coaxing Heidi to sleep. Colic, the doctor in Nashville had said, babies need to be home. They need stability, regular feedings, not the road. Just one more gig. Cindy had said it again and again so they don't forget us. I'll be a mother forever, but I'm only a star now. So Stanley padded back and forth in his socks while Heidi cried. I won't be a baby forever, she seemed to say. But Stanley would always be her father, even if he wasn't. He cradled her head and sang to her, the little golden stranger with yellow-green eyes and caramel hair, and walked in circles until she was heavier than the 40 pounds he dragged on his back through Europe, heavier than the bodies he dragged into shallow ditches and unused foxholes, heavier than Johnson in that space where his heart used to be. 
Then she would smile and coo, staring at Stanley with love, her eyes like little drops, little shards of Duane's. I know you love me, baby. Cindy crawled in the bed. But it's good to know other people do, too. Her hair, still in various stages of primping from last night's show, framed half of her face, the other side matted where it lay on the pillow. She looked like some sort of mythic creature, a temptress turned siren. She smiled at him, and he touched her face, a face he did not recognize some nights, behind the stage lights and the lipstick and the rouge. A little woman propped on a stool in the front of Pickers so the audience could see her, a little woman with a big voice. Perhaps he had never known her. Perhaps he was one rung on the ladder in which she was climbing her way to adulation, to acceptance, a hunger for approval, for love that seemed insatiable, a love Stanley thought foolishly he could provide solely. And her love for him? On stage, she was everyone's savior, dressing their wounds with her voice, her eyes. If one person loves you, that should be enough. He took her hands and squeezed them, smelled the woman of her. He pushed her back on the bed, released her hands. He felt himself push against his pants as he straddled her. You don't need anybody after that. Baby, not now, she wriggled underneath him. I have to call Wendell back. We get a lot of free dates next week. There's got to be a barn dance or a radio show we can do while we wait to hear from the Opry. I bet they'll give us a spot on the Louisiana Hayride after that show we did on KWKH. He leaned over her, his strength quelling her struggle, as he loosened his drawers. Heidi began to cry in the crib, a little cry that cracked his spine upright, sending pressure to his head, a headache. He gathered her and brought her to Cindy, who took her to her breast. Think we got a little country star on our hands, baby? She stroked Heidi's head. Mama's baby. Maybe we can get a mother-daughter act going when the time's right. Isn't one selfish little country star enough? He grabbed his shirt and boots, his erection sinking. I'm leaving. Where are you going to go, Stanley? She laughed at him. Laughed at him like he was nothing. The baby sucking at her breast. Home and drink yourself to death. I'm going to Ohio. There are things I have to do. Oh, that's right, your little dead soldier friend. She pulled Heidi from her breast and placed her in the bassinet. I wonder who you really are in love with Stanley. It would make much more sense, wouldn't it? You have to burp her. Stanley dove toward the bassinet and cradled Heidi on his shoulder as she cried, then burped. We know who you're really in love with, and it ain't me or this baby. Go to Ohio or wherever you need to, you goddamn pansy. Cindy lit a cigarette and picked up the hotel phone. She reached into her purse and pulled out two $100 bills, and they fluttered toward him, birds with broken wings. Just get out. I'm going to the Grand Ole Opry. He went to the bus station to purchase his ticket for Bowling Green, Ohio. But as he waited on the bench, smoking cigarettes, he thought of Heidi's eyes, her little sprout of hair, her little hands that had begun to memorize the contours of his face, hands that grasped frantically until she felt for him his shirt or his forefinger, his earlobe. He felt tears in his eyes, her place in the foxhole of his heart right next to Johnson. He went back to the hotel. Cindy looked up at him quizzically from the phone. She did not stop him as he packed Heidi's bassinet and her bag and put her in her stroller. At the station, he traded in his ticket to Bowling Green and bought two bus tickets to Maryland instead. As he watched the fields of wheat and corn and barns and water towers and bus exhaust accumulate between him and Cindy, he thought of what to do to Heidi's room back home. A bunny painted on the wall, a crib, a doll. He could read her books, Tom Swift and the Hardy Boys, and Nancy Drew. He did not have much to give her, he thought, except for his undivided love and attention. He figured it was a good start. 
So that's all I'm going to read. I can, yeah. Okay. Um, right now, is your life basically writing, or do you have another job that... Oh, I, I work full-time. Um, I'm a medical copy editor. I, I work from home, and um, I just write when I can. So, and, I don't know, I just, it just, I don't, like, set a time, set a time every day to write. It just sort of, when I sit down, it's sort of, it's sort of in there, it's in my head, it's working, and then I can sit down and let it out. So it's always sort of working in my head. Um, but that's yeah. I don't. I'm not a full time writer. I'd say. So. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, I uh, came from my uh, uh, Sunday school class. Uh, many, many, many years, and it's uh, always uh, uh, always trying to impart how uh, uh, how we're going to avoid this repetitive. Uh, Violence keeps occurring, uh, and uh, uh, we, uh, are given the simple answers uh, of how to avoid violence. Uh, I've uh, gone through each class year, year, year. We start with the Ten Commandments, and then the two great commandments: uh, love God, love thy neighbor as thyself. Such simple rules, but yet you've got the state violence, repetitive wars, mm-hmm. and as Stanley goes through, you see what happens in these wars. I'm, I'm so I'm interested in how you prepared yourself to write that particular passage because it was like, uh, you know, they say a thousand words of, you know, a uh, picture is worth a thousand words. I mean, you could see the depiction of that. But it doesn't have the effect that uh, these words that you just read did on me. Oh, well, thanks very much. Um, that's really, really kind. Um, I, I actually did a lot of research. Like, I, um, I first started, I watched, like, um, there's the miniseries, Ken Burns, The War. And then I looked through his source materials because he had done so much work already. I, I started reading the books that he had read and um, reading the transcripts of the um, people connected to the war that he had talked to and um you know i just there's so much that i read like um you know my my girlfriend would come home at one point and she'd be like what are you doing and i'd be like on the the internet and i'd be like reading about like the graves and registration service like you know like how do people's belongings get home when they die and you know all this stuff that you didn't i didn't necessarily need to know but just so i could feel like you know i had a, a command of you know, and, and you, you never know. My biggest fear in writing this book was that I would always do a reading and there'd always be someone in the back that would say, that's wrong, you know. So you, I, mean, I think it really, when you're, when you're writing, even though you're writing fiction, it really, it, it really, it's almost like writing nonfiction. You really want to get the details right. Um, and it even did happen to me once because in later, later in the book, there's a, a reference to, uh, I, I referenced, um, uh, Coney Island being Woody Guthrie's childhood home. And someone wrote me and said, no, it wasn't. He lived there as an adult. And I was just like, damn, you know. So you, you really want to, people are really vigilant and they, they, they won't hesitate to let you know if you've made a mistake. So it's sort of that, I think, that fear that someone is going to come up to you and, and call you on doing sloppy research. And plus, once you get started, you just, it's, I don't know. I, I, I was, I'm just, I'm still really fascinated by the war. It's, it's like, 
I feel like I understand my grandfather's better. You know, my grandfather would, would write these letters to his buddies and it would be like the 80s and the 90s and he'd like write these make these like little he was like the first like zine person I know he's like making his own zines in the 90s like of his war days and like pictures of his friends and he'd um, copy them Xerox in the library and send these newsletters out and stuff I mean he was like and I'd be like why is this so important to him you know and once I started reading about the war and the greatest generation and what they shared like I really understood the bonds that at that point the closest thing I'd had was just going to college you know and having college friends but imagine how, going through a war with someone and you 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 can never experience that with with, with your wife or your you, you just you, you know that you can never experience that so I was really I was really taken in by the whole once I started reading I couldn't get enough of it um, I'll never write another book about it but I certainly still am interested in, in World War II because of that so but thanks it's good to hear that it sounds authentic so oh thanks Yes. First of all, thank you very much for coming. I enjoyed very much the reading. And I would venture to say that most of us in here are not writers, but all of us in here are readers. Mm -hmm. And I'm very interested if you could tell us how do you read? How do I read? How do you read? Unfortunately, it's everything. Like I even read like finger hut catalogs if they're sitting on the table. I just, you just, I just can't not read. Like I, um, I don't know. I, I was really introverted as a child, and I, I found it a lot easier. And you know, we, you know, we were we were comfortable, but we didn't go to like vacations to Europe or anything. So it was like I don't know. You just go to the library, and you're able to find out about the world from reading books. And my grandfather would take us to the library every Saturday. My brother, my brother and I, um, and. I don't know. I just the whole world opened up beyond like East Baltimore for me, like reading these books, and I, I realized, you know, it's that old cliche, but knowledge is power. And for, for for me, like books represented a way to gain that knowledge without that it was um, that was equal. I could, you know, someone who went to a private school, which I didn't, or suppose someone who went to a public school, I could still, you know, be on the same plane and have get that information and and. Um, so I don't really. I just read. I just read everything. I, I have a lot of books by the bed. I read several books at once. Um, I'm reading Donna Tartt's *The Goldfinch Now*, which is like 700 pages. I'm 300 pages in. It's incredible. It's like, I highly recommend it. Um, I don't know. What, what do you read? What is your approach to reading? Not to put you on the spot, but. Hmm. Really? See so you plan ahead. Wow. Don't you ever deviate? Because sometimes I'll read a book and then I'll be interested in what it was about. And I'm like, well, I have to read more about that. So I'll pick up, you know, something. Some, sometimes I, I find that I try to keep my list loose. But, yeah. Yes? Oh, thanks. The microphone helps a lot. Um, then on to project. Um, yeah, the, I, I, the first time I read, I was years ago, and I was so terrified. I just read so fast and so quietly, and it's just been a, forcing your, myself to keep reading. And um, over the years, and it's gotten easier. And I'm I'm familiar with the material, and it's like part of me. So it's almost like 
sometimes I can even read and think about other things. Like, I'm so, I know the material so well, like now. So, um. I always, always make sure that people know that's a letter, because it's, it's different, you know, hearing is different visually. And I recommend, as readers, you should read books aloud, too, because they are a lot different than when you're just reading them with your eyes. They, they become so different, and you can understand what the author was trying to do with different, like listening to music, like there are different cadences and sounds of words, and it, it's a totally different experience. And it's something that writers do when they're writing. They read aloud to hear what, what, their, what words sound like. So, because they're meant to be spoken, too. Um, oh, yes, ma'am? No, well, when I was growing up, um, it was my mom. Um, you remember that I, I actually wrote longhand, and I have the, had the huge box of like of like notebooks that I had on the top of my closet that you for years begged me to take home. You're like, because I moved out, and she's like, your books, your stuff is still here. Take it home. And um, I finally, I finally got it. But yeah, ever since the computer, I, I, my handwriting has gotten so sloppy, I can't even understand what I wrote. If I write something two hours later, I can't decipher it. So. I have to use the computer now. Oh, some sometimes. If, I mean, sometimes. But usually, I try to keep. You keep as writers, you keep drafts, and you might have like three different versions of chapter three, and so you can go back and see what you took out six months ago that you thought you, know, you might need to use it somewhere else. But it's all yeah. You, you, we tend to keep everything, which is, um, you know fortuitous for me because if I hadn't kept that 50 pages that novel I'd started if I just said oh this is crap and gotten rid of it I wouldn't probably have been able to write this book too so you know yeah oh you're welcome yes Well, I'm actually, I actually finished a novel since this one, and I'm working on a new one. So I just, yeah, I keep moving. I, when I was revising this one, I had an idea for another novel, which started as a short story, and it just kind of outgrew the short story. So when I was officially done this one, I just started working on that. And when I was finishing up the novel this summer, I had an idea. It was actually a short story that was published somewhere, and I thought this could be an actual whole novel if I, if I really worked on it. And um. So yeah, there's always you always have you always have a lot of different things you're working on short stories or I mean I have an idea for a novel now that I probably won't visit revisit for several years and if it still interests me then maybe I will but you, you always have a lot of things that you're sort of working on in the back of your mind. So, so that's the second novel that is that coming out? Um, it's it's in submission now, so I don't know. Um, we'll see. Oh, thanks, thanks. Yes. Time. I have another question. Can you address the um, role of you and your agent, and and the agent, um, and the editor, and then the editor and you, or maybe the, the, not from the in between step, you and the agent, and then the editor and, and you. Well. You know, I, when I finished this book this summer, I, I I had an editor on this side before I sent it to the agent, because I, 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 someone I really trust who, uh, who sort of shares my editing philosophy and could see, and she edited the, the Tide King and did a really um, great job in helping me rein it together. So 
when I sent it to my agent, I, it was like, my opinion, just done. I, you know, done, done, done. And actually, I was really lucky in that she only had really small changes. Like, she agreed with our vision of the book. And as far as I know, I mean, as far as I know now, I mean, there, there are editors who are reading it, and I don't know what, what they think. I'm curious to know. I'll hear back. We'll hear back from them soon. But um, it's, it's, you know, they're, they're, I know lots of people who have written really great books and they just haven't been picked up because of taste or maybe there's a first, you know, being that maybe they're not looking for that market or maybe they think it won't sell. But um, you know, the Tide King came out with a, a, small, a small independent press and um, a lot of people passed on it. But I'm always encouraged by the, you know, when people read the book, they tell me that they they really liked it, and I'm I'm, I'm really grateful that, that I'm able to reach still reach people and and that they did enjoy it. So I can't let you know the opinion of a few a few editors, you know, cha- you know, influence what I write or my approach to writing. So I'm just going to keep writing whatever you know I want to write, and, and, and um, your passion will come through too. If you, you know, I've, I've also had people say, "Oh, I should write this type of book because this type of book sells more." And it's like, "Well, no, you write about what you're passionate about. Don't write about what you think sells." And um, it doesn't matter if it sells or not. It's that you did it. You know, this is a this is a hard thing to do. Writing a book is hard. Um, it's I don't know because there was an interview with Donna Tart about her book, and she's like, "Writing." It was on um, Good Morning America. She's like, "Writing, reading is one level, and writing is like one level deeper." And I'm like, "No way! It's like way, 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 way deeper." Because, you know, as a reader, you know, I'm reading someone's book and I'm processing it, and it's but it's a very passive experience. It's like watching a film or a play or listening to music. It's passive. Like the 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 the, the plot has been chosen, the characters, the, the the puzzle. I can puzzle out the mystery, but still, the pieces have been chosen for me. When you're a writer, you have to, you know, weave that all from whole cloth. You have to figure out. You have to think of the puzzle. You have to know what you're showing the reader. You know, you need to know the scope and the characters. It's all under your control, and it's all. It's almost like the paradox of choice. It's all so overwhelming. It's like, how do I get everything down into this little package? So I think it's really, it's it's like a really good mental. Uh, puzzle to to work on a book for for me anyway. Um, I, I actually enjoy it more than reading because I think it's more active. I do have more control and it, it does have a, it's more rewarding than reading someone else's work and relating to it. It's like re- reading your own work and relating to it and say, "Wow, that came out of me." It's like having a baby. I think I don't ne- never had a baby, so maybe I shouldn't say. <laughs> but. Oh yes. question i mean i know in the 90s i was still writing longhand i still had the notebooks um i don't know i i really don't know i i think it was harder at first because i could you know like flip back and forth between the pages and see and i hated like scrolling and i was still like winding having to wind up printing out all the things i'd written so i could i have like a desktop mind i need to see like everything in front of me and it's it's gotten now that I actually spend more time in the moment of the page like I'm not thinking about five pages ago it's, it's forced me to really be um, on that page and working in that paragraph so maybe it's um, maybe more um, 
maybe more focused on on the actual line and and paragraph and edits as opposed to like oh I've just written five pages isn't that isn't that cool you know so I'm I think at least for that part it's I can't really speak for anyone else but that's what I've noticed mostly about it so um, Judith theater sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, but you seem to inhabit characters that are quite distant from yourself. So how do you go about that, that habitation? Hmm. Well, I wouldn't... I, um, it's almost like they... And this, pro- this sounds like um, a little crazy. You can say it because you're a writer, but I feel like that there are other people that inhabit my head sometimes, and I just... Like you have imaginary friends growing up, and writers have them for life. We just sort of um, write them down. And on paper, so um, I know you just read the the novellas that I wrote, and to speak to those characters, that there's a mentally challenged boy that I wrote first person about, and one in one of a, a novella that I wrote, and he just sort of I don't know came to me one day, and I wrote a short story about it, and then it, he he was it seemed like he was unhappy with it. That was it it, and he kept bugging me, kind of in the back of my head, like you need to tell my whole story. Um, so yeah, it's it's I don't know how to explain it. I just I actually live with other characters and I have like little soap operas of my own in my head that I you know, and, and sometimes if I'm just sitting there staring at the space phone, that's what I'm doing. I just I'm watching the soap opera in my head unfold. So um yeah, they just speak to me. I don't know, I don't really do much except to just kinda of write it down. And but I'm also really interested in other people's I think part of you, you you write partly to understand other people's points of view and when you put yourself in other people's situations and you really try to think through, like, why would they make these choices or why wouldn't they make the same choices that I do? I think that helps you grow as a person, and that's interesting to me, too, the other others. So, yeah, yes? Um, would you mind commenting on the, the book that is out with the actors now? Oh, yeah, sure, I can. Um, I am... Um, well, I, I vacation sometimes in, in Newport, Rhode Island, and there's a lot of beautiful old uh, mansions there from the, the Gilded Era. And um, I was reading um, a, an autobiog- autobiography of a... There's a, a band that I used to follow in Newport. The the girl went to Salve Regina College up there, and in her... her me- it was her memoir. In her memoir, she was saying how when she went to Salve Regina, that the movie star Betty Hutton was in her class. And... Um, Betty, she was in um, Annie, Get Your Gun, and a couple other things. Just very tall, brash woman, very more of a comedic actress, very physical. Um, did some vaudeville and stuff, and she was saying that they became friends, like this young 18-year-old musician and Betty, this 70-year-old Betty Hutton. And Betty would like come to like this girl's like band shows, and she would bring her priest with her to the to the concert, you know, to the club and this tall woman in white with a cowboy hat and her priest at the back of the club, you know. And um, I was just really fascinated by their relationship. And I, so I, I, I wrote this book about this, this young girl who wants to be an artist who meets the acquaintance of an, an old reclusive movie star who lives in one of the old decaying mansions on Bellevue Avenue in Newport. And um, she's loosely modeled after Betty Hutton and Joan Crawford. And there's this sort of murder mystery that they solve together. Um, it's it's kind of a MacGuffin, I guess, of the book. But um, but yeah, that's that's the book that's out right now. So I'm, I was really happy to write it. Cause like, like I said, I got to read a lot about 
Benny Hutton and, and Newport mansions and, and um, I don't know I, like I said I just find things interesting in life and in this case it was this musician's relationship with Betty Hutton I thought would, was really kind of cool and I thought I want to write about what this so yeah thanks um, well thanks okay Oh, it's called um, Rabbits Singing, is the title. Rabbits? Singing, yeah. I so. like that title. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, Long. I didn't read it. Did anyone else have a comment or a question to ask Jen? I have a comment. Okay. She's a good writer. Oh, Thanks. We, we my, all agree. My, 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 mom's going to blurb my next book, right? <laughs>